Welcome everyone to Finance Podcast Week and our first live stream of the week, Between Two Chains Live, a live episode of the Between Two Chains podcast with Peter Hans. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions much like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from all around the world. We also have exclusive pre-release episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel, channel available for free. You can replay any of the panels on the Finance Podcast Week podcast channel. Download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time about all of the live streams and specially released episodes that we have during the week. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting company and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see that we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now we'll go ahead and hand it off to our host of the live stream and the Between Two Chains podcast, Peter Hans. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's uh, great to be here at Podbean Finance Week. Uh, My name is Peter Hans. I am the host of Real Vision's uh, Real Vision Crypto's podcast, Between Two Chains. Uh, For those of you not familiar, because this is uh, a little different than than we normally do, uh, Between Two Chains is a podcast devoted to exploring um, the investment world of digital assets. Um, That is a world that goes kind of well beyond Bitcoin, which I'm sure everyone is at least familiar with, and into kind of this growing world of blockchain as a technology and uh, the various sectors of our economy that blockchain can can permeate. Uh, Currently, we're in uh, extremely early stages um, of this technological revolution and the impact it's going to have on, um, on our economy, frankly, globally. Um, right now, um, there are uh, you know, cryptocurrencies, of course, but then also a number of other applications in terms of building out a, a financial system. There are um, various layer one uh, platforms and protocols out there, like uh, Ethereum being the most well-known, um, but then there are also ways in which blockchain is being used um, to decentralize our financial and banking system, um, as well as to um, prove ownership um, in the form of things like NFTs and digital art, uh, which I'm sure many of you have seen the headlines about um, the recent Christie's auction where a Beeple uh, digital art piece sold for $69.3 million, which is actually the um, third highest art sale of any kind of art by uh, a living artist of, of all time. Um, I also serve as a a managing director at ARCA, uh, which is an investment management firm focused on the digital assets landscape. Um, I've been investing professionally across different asset classes for over 20 years. And uh, today I'm joined by a a longtime colleague and and friend of mine and um, and now coworker, uh, Jeff Dorman who serves as the uh, CIO of, of ARCA. And, uh, you know, really looking forward to sharing some thoughts with you. And one of the cool things about this is that we have the ability to take questions live. So um, if you have any questions, please throw them out there and I will do my best to address them. Um, so Jeff, how are you doing? I'm great. Thrilled to be here, Peter. Yeah, always, always a good conversation. So, um, you know, given that this is probably a little bit of a, a new audience um, for us, and I gave a, a, a an incredibly brief bio, why don't, why don't you do the same and just kind of give give the uh, give our attendees here just kind of a brief background of, of who you are and what you're all about? Sure, absolutely. So, I'm Jeff Dorman. I'm the Chief Investment Officer uh, at ARCA. And as Peter mentioned, we are exclusively focused on the digital asset space. Uh, I started my career about 20 years ago as an investment banker at Lehman Brothers. Uh, I then moved into a capital markets and syndicate role, and then eventually into bond trading, trading everything from boring investment grade bonds down to the super esoteric and exciting distressed and reorg equities. 
Uh, I then left uh, Lehman, I went to Merrill Lynch, uh, and then Citadel, uh, and then a couple other smaller hedge funds as well, uh, before ultimately moving into fintech, uh, and then ultimately starting this company. So I've been in and around investing in a lot of different areas across every region, every sector, every asset class, and uh, this is by far the most exciting I've ever been a part of. Yeah, completely agree there as well. Um, you know, it's an asset class that has a lot of inefficiencies, which always always spells opportunity, um, but also just kind of hyper growth. Um, you know, and one thing I think you do really well, Jeff, is kind of break down the, you know, the asset class uh, for people, because obviously everyone's familiar with Bitcoin um, and everyone's familiar with cryptocurrencies. I actually had a call earlier this morning with uh, with an investor who. Um, was trying to differentiate between, um, you know, cryptocurrencies and what we actually invest in and, and kind of um, assuming that all, um, you know, tokens or all digital assets are cryptocurrencies. So why don't you, you know, share kind of your thoughts of, of how you lay out the universe. And, and I think one of the interesting things is here is because we are so early in this space, um, you know, anyone is free to kind of, kind of do this. It's not like the bond world where you have you know, converts and, and bonds with put features and call features and municipal bonds and, and high yield investment grade, right? Like a lot of this stuff is currently being defined, um, which is just really exciting. So, you know, share some of your thoughts on how you look at the, the investment uh, makeup. Yeah, sure. And, and I think it's funny that you say, you know, of course, everyone's heard of Bitcoin and everyone knows Bitcoin already. I mean, three years ago when we started ARCA, that wasn't even the case. Uh, that's how fast and, and, and far we've come here. I mean, you know, this is when we first started our, 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 our hedge fund, people were looking at us to get exposure to Bitcoin. And now we get the exact opposite question, which is we already have exposure to Bitcoin. What else can you provide for us? And what we're trying to do is is really educate people and understand what are the different different types of digital assets. Um, and, and one way to think about that for a second is, is I hope everybody who's listening to this is, has, has some exposure to ETFs or has heard of ETFs. Um, the ETF is just a structure, right? What you put inside the ETF is what matters, right? You have different types of ETFs. You have fixed income ETFs. You have equity ETFs, real estate, uh, commodity ETFs, et cetera. You have different active and passive strategies. The same thing is now true with digital assets. It's more than just cryptocurrency. You can package a lot of different things into these digital assets. And we categorize it into four different types of digital assets. So the first one being, of course, cryptocurrencies. Uh, there are more than just Bitcoin, but but you know, Bitcoin truly has, uh, if not a technolo uh, technological, technological advantage, it certainly has a uh, marketing and brand advantage. Uh, it's gonna be really hard for other cryptocurrencies to really catch Bitcoin in terms of just people using it and people understanding it and people knowing what it is, but there are others. Uh, truthfully, that's actually kind of a boring part of the digital asset uh, 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 asset class now, though. It's 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 a singular theme, right? The theme is digital money. The theme, you know, maybe purchasing power, but it's it's kind of boring. There's not a whole lot to do with digital currency uh, other than own it. Um, the other three parts of digital assets are much more interesting from an investing standpoint. So the second one being. Uh, what we call platforms and protocols, as you already suggested earlier, Peter. Uh, you know, this includes Ethereum, but there's a lot of other ones as well. Uh, everything from uh, uh, new up-and-comers like Flow and Avalanche to, you know, some of the older ones like EOS and Tezos. Uh, but basically, the way I think about platforms and protocols is that these are base layer technologies, uh, similar to HTTP being the base layer for the Internet and SMTP being the base layer for email. And then ultimately, all these other things were built on top of it. That's really what platforms and protocols are. These are these are building blocks, but somebody has to build something on top of it for it to have any value. Uh, they're a little harder to value. Um, this is uh, very popular in the venture capital community because the VCs love to look for long shots, the things that have huge total addressable markets, but maybe aren't definable today. Um, I think that's why you see a lot of the VCs buying these protocols, because if any of them really work, they're going to be, you know, trillion dollar potential, but they don't necessarily have real economic value today. Um, Ethereum, of course, being the, the the major one right now, almost everything that has been built in blockchain, blockchain to date has been built on Ethereum. But there are some up and coming competitors that are starting to have real applications built on top of them, like Solana, uh, for instance. Um, another way to think about protocols and platforms is, is comparing it to things you use every day. Um, you know, the, the iOS app store, for example, that would be the equivalent of Ethereum. But then the applications that you are actually using um, within the iOS app store would be the other applications in blockchain that are also now investable. So that moves us into the third type of digital asset, which is what we call pass-through tokens. And pass-through tokens are 
uh, it sound exactly like what they are. You, you're getting something passed through to you by owning the token. Um, that can be in the form of loyalty or reward points, you know, similar to your Delta or United Sky Miles, uh, similar to your Starbucks points, but something uh, of value for being a part of the ecosystem or being a part of the network, you actually benefit for owning the token and that benefit is passed through to you. But it also can have uh, actual like revenues and profits and other things passed through to you as well. Um, a lot of these tokens are now set up in a way where you actually earn a dividend or they're buying back tokens similar to a stock buyback. So these tokens can be formed in a, in a variety of different ways. You mentioned fixed income earlier, like these pass-through tokens are probably the most similar to fixed income in the sense that you can have so many different permutations and you really do have to understand what you own and why you own it and how the value is passed through. But ultimately, these pass-through tokens are all the applications that are built on the App Store. So these can be finance apps, these can be games, uh, these can be, you know, uh, 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 as you already mentioned, NFTs or collectibles. There's really uh, an unlimited amount of applications that can be built on blockchain. And unfortunately, you have a chance to own the tokens that backs these applications. And a lot of them have real economic value and can be really interesting investments. Um, the fourth type of digital asset is a little more boring, uh, but it, it has a lot of value as well, which is asset-backed tokens. And these are tokens that are backed ex uh, explicitly by something, either that's debt or equity or a hard asset. But they can also get pretty interesting as well. There was actually an NBA player by the name of Spencer Dinwiddie uh, who decided to tokenize his NBA contract. And you could actually buy this token and you, you would get paid a 4.9% annualized yield, just like, just like a regular bond. But that, that token was explicitly backed by the income that he was earning. I'm sorry, that, 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 that uh, Spencer was earning with his three-year NBA contract. So the point here is this is nothing to do with cryptocurrencies. These are different types of assets that are unique and accrue value in different ways. And there's only a handful of investors in the world who even know this space exists, let alone knows how to value it. So everyone on this call today is already ahead of most of the professional investors in the world. Yeah, I think that's a, that's actually that last point is, is a really good one. Um, because, you know, I think a lot of people will look at, um, you know, price run-up of, of Bitcoin, and, and especially given that the correlations historically, uh, this is obviously changing, you know, every day and over time, but the correlations of the asset class um, have been, you know, largely approaching one, and the most dominant, you know, the, the most dominant name in the market is is Bitcoin. Um, but what you're now starting to see, obviously, is there are fundamentals of digital assets that are very different than Bitcoin, you know, like um, insurance companies, right? Like couldn't be couldn't be more different from fundamentals to Bitcoin. But because they are both um, digital assets, there might be some semblance of uh, of a correlation. But obviously, this is um, you know, starting to starting to change, and, and assets are becoming, um, you know, more and more uncorrelated. Uh, but to your point about it being very early, you know, one thing that that I like to think about is, um, you know, it seems like the the digital assets outside of Bitcoin that have been, um, you know, growing substantially. And if you look at the, um, you know, the the market caps of the of the larger, more liquid tokens um, in digital assets that are not explicitly cryptocurrencies um you know you primarily have a lot of the players in the in the DeFi space which you know i think of as infrastructure because ultimately if you're going to build what really is kind of a totally decentralized economic ecosystem um, you need to have the infrastructure to support that you need to have the exchanges um, that are that will allow for liquidity and, and velocity uh, between uh, counterparties you need to have um, uh, data oracle services like Chainlink. you need to have insurance um, and then you need to have kind of lending borrowing infrastructure if you're going to um, kind of decentralize and get rid of all the red tape and and bureaucracy around traditional lending and finance, that infrastructure needs to be present. And to me, it's not unlike, um, you know, the advent of the last extremely significant technological innovation that, that you know, our global economy has seen, which is, which is the internet, frankly, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, there were, um, you know, stocks that were up, you know, approaching, um, you know, 100,000%. I mean, Dell was up 95,000% throughout the decade of the 90s, which is just like an 
it's an absolutely insane return profile over over a 10 year period um you know especially when you consider okay well even bitcoin which was up what 300% last year um there's a pretty major difference between 300% and 95,000%. And and the other companies, you know, and why was Dell up? Well, very simply, like if people were going to access the internet for e-commerce, people needed to have a computer. You know, and that that was the hardware uh, that built it at the time. Um, you know, EMC was the was the second top performing stock. You had you had Microsoft, um, you know, you had Intel. Uh, you know, that was like your exposure to the internet. There was no Peloton, Netflix, um, even at the time in the early 90s, obviously, there was no Amazon. Um, you know, these second and third derivative uh, companies who build upon that infrastructure happened, you know, in many cases, 20 years later. Um, so, you know, right now, we're at the first innings of kind of this overall infrastructure build. And it's important to separate, I think, um, well, it's important to one, put into context the magnitude and, and like, yeah, 300% is a lot in a year, but it's not 95,000%. And, and also that, you know, we are in the early stages of this, of this kind of revolution. And we have yet to see the, you know, the second and third derivatives. We have yet to see the Netflix and, and Amazon of, of kind of the, the digital asset space and, and what that'll look like. So that's, you know, frankly, what, what what I'm excited about, and 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 what I think should get really everybody excited about, because um, there is an opportunity for for everyone uh, to play in this space. Um, so, Jeff, is there? You know, there at, yeah, go ahead. I'll say I'll, I'll take that even further too. Um, you mentioned Dell up ninety five thousand percent. Dell was a public company where a lot of investors could get access to it as they were buying a computer. But most of the growth in the last ten to twenty years has come in private equity, where you don't have access. I mean, I'll give you a couple examples where. You know, I was one of the first users of Uber. I just happened to be in San Francisco when I needed to leave a restaurant and get back to the airport. And, and someone there who was in the tech world said, you should call an Uber. I'm like, what the hell is that? And he's like, just try it. And I was like, okay. So I tried it. And I was like, well, this is pretty cool. And I had no ability to invest in that. Um, I was also one of the first uh, uh, customers of Blue Apron. Uh, my wife and I you know, like to cook, but we hate to shop for food. So we started using Blue Apron when we were in New York. And I emailed the, I actually emailed the founder. I said, this is really awesome. I'd like to invest. And he said, no, thanks. We just got a huge raise from uh, uh, from Bain Capital, one of the big venture capital investors. I'm like, okay, so here I am getting to be an early user, but I don't get to invest in any way, shape, or form. You could say the same thing about Amazon Prime. You know, Early Amazon Prime members were testing a new service. They got all these great benefits you know, from, from free shipping to you know, movies, movie, uh, music, uh, uh, now Whole Foods discounts. But they didn't make any money off of Amazon's success. Well, in digital assets, when you're an early customer, you also get the ability to benefit financially. And that democratization, uh, that ability to actually get in at the early level of companies and projects that you love and use every day, but also get the profit when they're successful, that's a big deal. And I think um, you know the, the 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 fact that you can get all of this information on your own and invest you know within 24 hours without having to email a founder or wait till they do a new a round or wait till they go public. That's a big deal as well. So not only are you seeing a secular shift uh, from the analog world over to digital, and not only are you seeing a handful of these infrastructure companies popping up, but you're also seeing some really cool applications pop up. And you can be a customer, you can be an investor all at the same time. And that's a huge win for investors. Yeah, I think I think that's that that that's exactly right. And it is, there is something. The other thing that's really interesting about the space is. Um, you know, when you talk about privates and especially over the past, um, you know, really, I guess, 10, 11 years, you know, kind of in this low interest rate, high risk environment, um, it very much lends itself to a widening wealth gap because it, it pushes up asset prices and it allows for cheap borrowing, which promotes, um, you know, leverage. And frankly, those that can uh, get approved to take out leverage are those who have the most assets already. So it just creates this kind of self-perpetuating um, cycle. And and historically, um, you know, the the beneficiaries of, of kind of, you know, market evolutions and new products, new services have always been um, those who were already in the market, not necessarily driven by kind of the everyday, every man, um, you know, retail investor, but, you know, just that ethos of Bitcoin um, has made it very different this time around, where, um, you know, Jeff, like you and I, I could probably count on one hand, certainly two hands, um, the number of like, you know, 
institutional investors kind of like who've been in other asset classes for, you know, a decade or two like us who are in this space. It's predominantly driven by your, you know, your, it's driven by retail, you know, and, and that's that, you know, yes, it creates opportunity for, for us, of course, but it, it's also, you know, kind of cool. Like, like, frankly, um, you know, you just don't, you don't see stuff like that in, in traditional markets. It's yeah. I mean, we're, we're used to retail people. We're used to regular, regular everyday people being the early customers. We're not used to everyday people being the early investors. And that's what this asset class has done. The professional investors don't even know this exists yet. They don't care about it. They, a lot of them are still skeptical and the size of the asset class is largely too small for them. And that's, you know, the perfect setup for regular everyday people to learn about this space on their own. And, and I'll go even further. I think I saw a question uh, come in just a second ago, about like, how do you get into this space outside from Bitcoin? That's the beauty of this is that, you know, most of the information flow that is coming out in this space, it's not happening on, on earnings calls. It's not happening, you know, at, at Wall Street to get togethers. It's happening on Reddit. It's happening on Twitter. It's happening in, you know, Telegram chat rooms. You know, if you decide that you want to go beyond Bitcoin and get invested in this space, you know, obviously there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of research. I mean, that's why we have a hedge fund. That's why we manage money professionally. But if you want to learn yourself and do a little bit of it yourself, you can do it. You can join these different uh, communities and ask questions and learn and, and, and you know, see the, the, the releases that are coming out directly from the companies on their blogs and on their Twitter feeds. So it's a really easy space to learn once you kind of get the landscape of what exists. So. Um, you know, there's a couple of good aggregation sites out there, uh, anything from CoinMarketCap to CoinGecko to Masari, where you can learn about what exists. And then once you see something that exists and you want to learn about it, all the information is there. So, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I don't think the institutional money is going to come into this space any faster than the retail money, because the retail investors have all the same access that anyone else does. Yeah, no, I think that, that that's exactly right. And, and, and frankly, the retail investors in in many cases have have somewhat more access just because like digital assets these are not can these are not considered um securities and there's very stringent um custodial and and sec rules around um you know regulated uh asset managers and, and funds and who they work with from a counterparty perspective so you know you can't go to a broker dealer as a say a traditional hedge fund and buy you know, even Bitcoin, frankly, because that that broker dealer is not allowed to custody it. And that's why you have everyone from, you know, Coinbase to Uniswap to, to Binance um, and, and different counterparties. And because it's a totally different counterparty ecosystem, it's a different service provider ecosystem. Um, the traditional, quote unquote, Wall Street um, is not involved in, in, in the asset class to this point. That will certainly change um, and it's already starting to change. Um, but right now, that's that's just the way it is. So I think, you know, Jeff is exactly right for that, for that question of, you know, how do I get, you know, how do I, how do I get exposure? How do I, cause I could know, know it's overwhelming and there's, you know, thousands and thousands of different tokens and they all have different use cases. And, and some, some are, you know, objectively speaking, useless and some are very exciting. Um, so I would just kind of, you know, I think Masari that, that Jeff mentioned that IO is a really good, source because you know it'll show the various tokens you can read the white paper you can look at what it does and you can just kind of decide like what do i what, what do i think is interesting what makes sense to me um what do i like um you know and, and just kind of like anything else i mean invest in what you invest in what you know invest in what you use even if i look at you know my uh you know my public equity holdings right the times i've had you know the times i've i've, I've had my you know worst uh, my worst trades are always been things that i didn't use or understand or know like my you know my bet the only thing i invested in now in an equity standpoint is like paypal amazon um you know target it's like businesses that my family and i use every day and that i understand and um you know and now i mean it's a different market now because valuations across the all asset classes are pretty crazy um which is which is a totally different conversation but you know jeff maybe we maybe we do segue into that because we're in a absolutely insane economic environment right now as a result of, you know, a lot of, a lot of factors, but, um, let's, you know, let's, let's explore that a little further. We, we touched upon it a little bit in terms of inflating asset prices, but you know, that, that is a narrative that is, that has really helped the digital asset space over the past year. 
um, you know, and as a former a former uh, bond trader, you know, how do, how do you think about this kind of perpetual risk on trade as a result of, of kind of easy monetary policy? Sure. Yeah, no, a lot of, I mean, obviously anybody who is on here now who's familiar with Bitcoin, I mean, Bitcoin obviously started with a white paper back in 2009 in a direct response to the craziness of the financial crisis and the, you know, all the money printing that was going on at the time to kind of solve the problem. Well, the amount of money that was thrown at the problem then was under a trillion dollars. Now we're throwing, you know, tens of t $10 trillion around uh, in terms of uh, uh, monetary and fiscal stimulus to you know, just keep the American machine afloat, not to mention uh, uh, global central banks around the world that are doing the same thing. So you know, what happens here is it's really just a gradual shift of just pushing investors uh, more and more along the risk spectrum, right? If you used to own cash because you wanted to have a safety net, that used to be fine. Well, that's less fine when you're being inflated away at two to 5% and all of a sudden your purchasing power goes down every single day. So what do you do? You go up to the next less risky thing. Well, that's you know government bonds. Okay. Well, government bonds around the world are, are yielding zero now, so that doesn't work. So you go to you know you go to corporate bonds or municipal bonds. Well, those used to give you a nice six to fifteen percent yield depending on the, the 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 quality. Well, now those are giving you you know anywhere from one to four percent. So what this is doing is it's just continuing to push more and more investors out that risk curve, and that's what sends you into. Nasdaq technology stocks that don't have any uh, earnings, but they have you know a lot of user growth. That pushes you into private equity. It pushes you into real estate, and and it's pushing you into digital assets as well. Um, and you know the difference being though is that debt and equity probably has a reversion to the mean. You know if you're buying stocks right now at a 35 price to earnings ratio or an infinite price to earnings ratio because they actually don't have any earnings. There's a good chance that that eventually reverts back to the long-term average of the 22 price to earnings. So you're probably buying things that are very expensive. If you're buying, you know, high-yield bonds at a 4.3% average yield to maturity, that's probably going to revert to the mean, which is more like 7%. You're probably buying things that are expensive; they're going to have lower yield potential. Um, but when you're buying digital assets, even if they're up a thousand percent or two thousand percent, there's a really good chance that there is no reversion to the mean because the mean hasn't been set yet, right? These are early-stage mm -hmm. technology companies for the most part, and you know, the fundamentals are growing just as fast as the price. And I know that might seem weird for people to hear the word fundamentals when you're used to hearing about just Bitcoin, but there really are fundamentals for these companies. Uh, decentralized finance is a good example. The whole DeFi sector, which is which is booming, um, you know, it's still only, uh, uh, I think, $50 billion in total market crap, total market cap across, across the entire DeFi uh, uh, landscape. That's tiny relative to what the 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 impact DeFi is going to have. When you're when you're thinking about being able to go get a loan or, or or borrow assets or you know doing insurance or even decentralized asset management or trading and doing all this in a decentralized way without a middleman, you know that we're talking about trillions of dollars of economic impact. And these tokens are trading collectively at a fifty billion dollar market cap, and they're generating real cash flows right now. A lot of these protocols and platforms and and, and apps that are built in DeFi. Are spitting out hundreds of millions. In fact, uh, there's one called Uniswap that that is going to that's run writing about a billion dollars of revenue right now. Uh, these are these are huge growth stories, and the revenue and the fundamentals and the metrics are there to support the price growth. So, and, and we can go beyond DeFi. We can go into Web 3.0 or sports and gaming, social tokens, you know, NFTs, you name it. You know, there's certainly some hype and there's certainly some valuation stretch going on, just like there is in the debt and equity world. But there's also a lot of real fundamental growth. And when you combine that with the fact that, you know, there's tons of new money coming into the space and you also have, like we said, like a real just technology shift away from the physical world into the digital world. I don't think this stops anytime soon. And I, I think the monetary and, and fiscal stimulus has certainly uh, uh, aided the, the formation of this sector. But I actually think it is a more, um, you know, secular shift into technology that's going to drive future gains and not the economics. Secular shift into thick. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think that's exactly right. And, and I think that if you look at um, kind of, you know, taking a step back, um, you know, what made, in essence, Bitcoin possible, because Bitcoin by itself was not a new 
frankly, nor a novel idea. There, you know, it was born um, out of the financial crisis because you know there was rightfully so a lack of trust for for the system. Right, we're bailing out banks, we're printing money. Um, you know, it's just kind of the system is rigged, right? And, um, you know, Bitcoin represented a totally decentralized way of getting out of that by having something that is governed by the code, right? There's there's um, a fixed amount of Bitcoin that exists and that will not change and it cannot um, um, and 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 that that has been that has been around, you know, long before uh, Bitcoin came out, what, what made Bitcoin possible was the underlying technology behind it of the blockchain. And um, what I think is really interesting post that is, um, and, and I'm sure you know many are, are familiar with, with Ethereum, but Ethereum is basically um, the, uh, a platform, um, not dissimilar in many ways, but a blockchain that allows for other people to build um, on top of it and to leverage um, you know, what's known as a, a smart contract. Um, which, you know, I think Jeff puts eloquently a lot. It's, it's basically just an if-then statement, right? So, um, you know, um, if X happens, then Y happens. And again, that's written into the code and it is immutable. Once X happens, Y is triggered. There is nothing that can be done. A bank can't say, well, I know we said if you post this collateral, we'd give you the loan, but, you know, things have changed. Nope, it is, it is locked in. It is, it is done. And the, the interesting thing is that has applications in so many, so many different end markets, um, because all a blockchain really is at its core is, is a ledger. It's a, it's a transaction. I mean, when you, when you have a normal transaction in accounting, you have, you have uh, debits and credits, you know, in balance sheets, you have assets, liabilities, and equities that you need to match. A blockchain is, is no different. It is just um, structured in a way where um, each ledger entry is tied um, um, to cryptographically to the ledger entry preceding it and the ledger entry uh, subsequent to it. So that as that chain grows and grows upon every transaction, um, any any manipulation of that blockchain will be immediately exposed and, and voided. That's why it's in essence immutable or, or impossible um, to change. Um, I actually just saw a question come in that I think is, is, is pretty interesting. Um, you know, so, so I'll reference this while we're kind of on the blockchain and, and, and Bitcoin discussion is, is can Bitcoin become a usable form of currency or has it become too big to use it to buy everyday items? So if I understand correctly, I think, I, I think the, the second part of your question is, is a little bit of a, of a misnomer. Um, so yes, you know, Bitcoin is, I don't know what it's trading at now, you have like 56,000, it's obviously volatile, um, dollars a coin, but that, that is a, um, um, divisible into, um, a, you know, by, by many, many units, right? So you can, you know, purchase something for the dollar equivalent of 11 cents by sending someone, you know, 0. 0.0000, whatever the math is, one, um, Bitcoin. Um, now there is a, there is a limit to, um, to how divisible it is, right? Which is, what is that? Is a Satoshi one millionth of a Bitcoin or is, it a, is that what it is, Jeff? Uh, yeah. Okay. So one, one millionth of a Bitcoin is basically the minimum unit, um, that you, one, that you, 100 millionth, sorry. One one hundredth millionth, yep. okay, of of a bitcoin, okay, is 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 the is the minimum unit that you can have, which is obviously a fraction of a of a penny, um, and uh, so you know technically yes, it, it could be used. Technically, I could go you know buy a pack of gum with bitcoin. Um, now, what really prevents you from doing that is 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 twofold. One is is the technology, right? The the uh, a blockchain transaction and in the on the Bitcoin blockchain is certainly not instantaneous. Uh, it needs to be validated six times over. Um, it takes some time to run a transaction through. So you know when you think about going to Starbucks and having them um, you know scan your app or doing the kind of one touch scan with it with a credit card, instantaneous transaction. Bitcoin blockchain does not work that way. Um, now there are there are there are 
you know, technologies and, and people are working on things to make it work that way, um, as I think Bitcoin was initially intended to be a everyday use global currency. Um, I think the the difference is you're not incentivized to spend it, um, and and you're not incentivized to spend it because it's um, it protects against inflation, right? There there is a limited supply of Bitcoin in existence. There will always be a limited supply of Bitcoin in existence. Um, in the past, you know, before the U.S. dollar, when it was pegged to gold, um, had a very similar um, functional dynamic. Where um, and that's why inflation, um, uh, you know, you that's why you had hyperinflation at points when we when we go away from that because um, removing that gold standard basically turns the dollar into a deflationary currency. We can print, and this is what this is what we what we mean when we say we have a printing press. The U.S. can literally never default on its debt. It is literally impossible because. At any point in time, the treasury can print more dollars. They are not backed by anything. They do not have to be backed by gold. They do not. They don't even have to be backed by dirt. They can just print more money and pay off debt in dollars. So if you take it a trillion dollar loan, you know we trust a ten trillion dollar coronavirus package. We can pay that off, right? But what it does is it circulates more and more money into the economy. It increases the M1, which is the velocity of money. It encourages spending which is ultimately good for the economy, but it also leads to inflation. Because if we just printed money and gave every citizen in the US a million dollars, that million dollars wouldn't be worth a million dollars anymore because everyone would have a million dollars. So you'd have inflation, prices would go up, and the Fed's ability to combat inflation is through interest rates. They raise interest rates to promote savings. That takes money out of the economy and that lowers inflation. So, you know, the dollar is deflationary. Bitcoin is inflationary. If my Bitcoin is going to go up in value as a result of inflation or more dollar printing, why would I ever spend that when I can spend dollars? Uh, And I don't think dollars are going away. They're not going to become extinct, right? But So what I think Bitcoin represents is gold. It's gold for this next generation, right? I've never owned yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Jeff. I mean, I, probably blabbering. I, I think that's true to some. I mean, I think that's true to a lot of extent. But I think there's, there's other a- aspects of it too. Um, I actually think Bitcoin will eventually be a transaction currency. I think part of the reason it's not now is one, when you when you transact using your Visa or your Amex card, uh, you know those transactions aren't going through right away either. What the what the merchant is doing is that's they're fair. basically getting it. They're getting an IOU from Visa or Amex, who are established centralized companies, where you know that eventually that's going to hit your bank account, right? There's no, like, you are taking counterparty risk as a merchant when you're doing that and you're trusting that it goes through. Similarly, if you did the same thing with Bitcoin, you're not taking centralized counterparty risk. You as the merchant would be, uh, you, you are basically assuming that the Bitcoin network is going to function correctly and that you are going to be getting those assets, even if it takes an hour or two hours or 10 minutes to go through. So it's not about the speed of the transaction. It's about the trust. And right now, almost everybody is still converting Bitcoin back to their home currency, whether that's dollars or you know Bolivian real or, or you know yen, whatever. So as a result, you're still thinking in dollar terms and you're thinking, okay, well, I'm taking risk. If I go accept a purchase for, you know, one tenth of a Bitcoin, well, by the time that settles and gets into my account, I'm taking that price risk because Bitcoin is volatile in my dollar currency and I don't want to do that. If in 10 years, every single person and every merchant in the world owns Bitcoin and we start pricing things in terms of Bitcoin rather than in dollars, then you don't really care about that price risk because, you know, one Bitcoin is still one Bitcoin. And if you care about what one Bitcoin buys you in terms of milk or, you know, utility bills or cars versus what it's worth in dollar terms, you're going to be willing to accept that risk. So it's part trust in the Bitcoin network versus your trust in like a Visa network right now. And it's part the that currency conversion. So I think we will get to a point where eventually things are quoted in Bitcoin and people do think about things in Bitcoin terms rather than in dollar terms. And I think you will start to see spending. Now, on top of that, what does that open the door for as well? Well, we already talked about the other types of digital assets. The other types of digital assets still function as payment vehicles, just like Bitcoin does. Like I can take Chili's CHZ, which is probably the coolest uh, app and probably the you know one of my favorite tokens that we own in our fund that's working on, 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 on a sports fan experience. But that Chili's token still operates on a, a blockchain, just like Bitcoin, and it can be sent uh, you know, in the same way. So what happens if in the future, 
I go to Starbucks and I'm like, you know what? I just spent $40 on all my friends in, in Starbucks, but I want to, I want to make it, you know, $10 of it be from Bitcoin, $10 of it be from ETH, $10 of it be from CHZ and $10 of it be from, you know, uh, uh, you know, Uniswap. Well, you can do that. And the merchant will basically, they're not going to take all of those different uh, digital assets in house, but there will be some sort of company in the middle. In fact, it already exists. There's a company called Flexicoin that does this. But, you know, some company in the middle will say, I'll convert that for you and ultimately just give you the digital asset that you want, whether that be Bitcoin or dollars or, you know, ETH or whatever. So the fact that all of these tokens on the blockchain network are payment vehicles as, as well as being investments it means we physically can do it. The only reason we're not doing it right now is because of the merchants not willing to accept it. Once this becomes mainstream and everybody has a digital wallet and everybody has all these different assets on their phone, and you know, I, I think there's no doubt in my mind that you will be spending these in addition to investing. Because to your point, you know, Pete, about not being incentivized to spend Bitcoin, you're not incentivized to spend Bitcoin right now. But if you did, you could go replace it. That's not really an issue. If you went and spent a Bitcoin, you're not like, oh my God, I can never get that back. You just go spend more dollars to get more Bitcoin. So but why I, would you do that? Um, when you have I, dollars, I, just spend the dollars. Yeah. I, again, I don't think you need to right now, but I'm talking about a world in five or 10 years where maybe conversion to dollars isn't in your brain. And if that's the case and everybody owns Bitcoin <laughs> and maybe and maybe one Bitcoin trades for you know a million dollars per Bitcoin and it stops going up 300% every year. Then people aren't going to think about it as an investment. Yeah. They're going to think no, about that, it just as another asset that they can spend. That, that, is, a, that is a very mature market. Um, that we are nowhere close to. It, sure. it also would have to be a a very slow drip because it would it would have to be because the government is never going to just you know <laughs> let the dollar die off, right? So you, you you would have to it would have to be led by the people or by the businesses in in many cases. Um, and you know that that the, the yeah it's interesting because the counterparty risk is is very. Um, broad in a case where you're paying with Bitcoin and and there's a you know someone that sits in between because that counterparty risk is actually the individual right because I am trusting that that person has the Bitcoin I, I think and this is something we've talked a lot about you know over, over the past you know few months the the more likely scenario you know we use Starbucks as an example like right now I go to Starbucks I pay with my you know Starbucks gold card and or I can use my stars which I earn every time I buy coffee right is those will just become a token um, so that I can I can use those stars I can continue to earn those stars as rewards but it'll be a Starbucks coin that I can transfer to another wallet that I can sell and convert to Bitcoin that maybe has other perks or benefits associated with it that I can exchange I can exchange that Starbucks coin for a um, for airline miles or for Uber points or for whatever it is like that that to yep. me, I get, yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I agree. Yeah. I agree with that too. I, th I think. I mean, I think that's. I wrote an article about that like three years ago. I think talking about how you know, I, on, a, on a typical Saturday, I was out. Uh, I'm, I'm an old man for the rest of you guys who are young here, but uh, you know, I have two young kids, and on a typical Saturday, we'd be strolling through our neighborhood and you know, going to a, a, a trampoline park or going to a restaurant or, or, or you know, hanging out at a park. We had no economic interest in anything that we were doing, and yet here I am invested in things like Starbucks, even though I don't drink coffee. You know, I'm invested in Peloton, even though we didn't have a Peloton. So it's like my economic interests, my financial interests were in things I weren't using. And the things that I was using, I had no economic interest in. To your point, I think that's where we're headed is if you're a heavy Starbucks customer, you're going to own the Starbucks token. And not only are you going to pay for that in that network, but you're also going to get some sort of economic kickback for owning it. You're going to get, you know, 10% of Starbucks's revenues will be passed through to you or you'll get some sort of dividend or something like that. And that'll be how we invest. We'll invest in the things that we use and we will actually use our investments to make the payments within that ecosystem. So, you know, you will actually have real reason to have your Delta Sky miles versus your United miles because you're an active Delta a customer and you're going to use those Delta Sky miles to pay for things in addition to accumulating them and earning them as you fly. And I think you're right. I think everything just becomes a closed ecosystem where to your point, the dollar still exists and Bitcoin still exists, but most of your actual payments are going to be coming with the specific tokens that exist for that community or that company or that network that you're using every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's frankly like what, what gets me um, really fired up about it and, and where this thing is going to go. Um, because there's just, you know, it's going to put so much more power in the pocket of the of the individual consumer um, and the in the individual, um, you know, customer of, of, of any company. And you'll be incentivized, right? You, you'll be evangelist. It's going to help small businesses grow faster. 
Um, you know, it's going to it's going to level a lot of economic playing fields, which I just think is incredibly powerful. Um, you know, what we, we did have a question that I that I that kind of made me chuckle. So I wanted I wanted to address it. Um, you, you know, so it was about basically was it Dogecoin or Dogecoin? I don't even know how to pronounce it. But, um, uh, you know, basically, is that you know, the same dynamics that exist for Bitcoin exist for, for Dogecoin or, or other or other kind of, you know, copycat cryptocurrencies. And, and for those who don't know, you know, like Bitcoin is built on open source code. Literally, anyone can go look at the Bitcoin blockchain and like copy and paste it. And you can create what's called a hard fork of Bitcoin. So there are other tokens out there that are literally copies of Bitcoin. Um, BCH is one, uh, Bitcoin Cash. BSV is one, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision. Dogecoin, Dogecoin was, I believe, also just a copy paste of Bitcoin with the exception of one change of code, which eliminated the cap on, on Bitcoin. So all things being equal, no, Dogecoin is, is not uh, in, inflationary. It's, it, is a, it is a technically a deflationary coin, just like the dollar. You can just make as much of you as, as, as you want of it. Now, I would say that said, just kind of like Bitcoin, just like gold, just like silver, um, the value is in what the community determines it's in. Um, and as those communities grow, um, there is more value. Um, you know, Bitcoin Cash might be kind of the same thing as, as Bitcoin. I don't know what the major differences are, but no one cares about Bitcoin Cash. So it's not worth, you know, so even though it has a market cap in reality, like over time, I don't think it'll be worth anything. You know, and you could say the same thing for BSV. I would argue you could say the same thing for Dogecoin, but you know, there are, there might be people who want to use it. You know, you really have to look at uh, when, when something doesn't have an explicit uh, value proposition associated with it, when you can't look at something and say, okay, this is the revenue that is earned. This is the pass through of revenue directly to me. This is the physical asset that this is backed by. Uh, intrinsically, I can say this is worth this. It's worth what the people who want to buy it say it's worth. Um, and, so, and, and, that, and, and, that's a, and that's really important, right? Because like, if you look at the top 20 or top 25 stocks in the world, most of them are from companies that you've heard of, right? You know, you've got your you've got your, 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 your Apples, your Amazons, your Googles, your JP Morgans. These are companies you've heard of. When you look at the top 25 by market cap in the digital asset world, most of them are not worth anything. And they're copycats of Bitcoin. They're probably going to go to zero over time. Um, they are, you know, a cryptocurrency. As we go back to the beginning of the show, when we were talking about the four types of digital assets, a cryptocurrency by itself has no value other than what somebody is willing to pay for. But these other types of digital assets do have value because they have revenues, you have yields, you have economic interest that you're getting in these things. So it is really important to understand what you're buying. And, you know, I'm not going to tell someone not to go out and buy Dogecoin. I mean, for all we know, Dogecoin might be you know more important than Bitcoin in 10 years. I have no idea. Sure. But but there's no way to value that or, ba or base that on anything other than just hope. Uh, and, and that's the same thing with Bitcoin, by the way. The only reason Bitcoin is is successful is because, quite frankly, it's become successful, right? It's 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 its own success has begot uh, beget more success. But these other digital assets do have uh, real reasons to exist based on the actual underlying company or the asset or the revenues. And I think, you know, my my takeaway there for anybody looking at things like Dogecoin or Bitcoin Cash or you know uh, uh, you know Ripple is really understand what it is and why it exists. Most of them don't really have a purpose. Uh, so as long as you understand that, invest all you want on your own. But there's also a reason why, you know, active management firms like ourselves are popping up is that it is a lot of research. I mean, we have eight people on our team dedicated 24 seven to researching and understanding that's this space. That's a lot of manpower and brainpower going into understanding what these different assets are. Um, you know, if you're going to do it on your own, just be uh, mindful of the fact that, uh, you know, there's probably people out there who know more than you do. So use those chat rooms, use, you know, Twitter, find out ways that you can learn about this. Go to the Masari's website and really understand what are these, what are these, what, what drives them, uh, what drives the, the interest in them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, you might lose a little money along the way and you'll learn from it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, there's, there is information out there. It's very democratized. Um, you know, it's an incredible space to be learning about. Um, and, and, you know, we are to the point at the very beginning in the extreme early stages. And, and by definition, everyone listening to this podcast is early and, and has a, a massive amount of, of, of opportunity here. Um, so Jeff, I think we're running up on, 
on our time. Yeah, you know. Peter, thank you so much. This is Norma Jean from Finance Podcast Week. I wanted to say that is just such a perfect, perfect point. I think to to end on is that we're still in an in a, in a place where everybody is welcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. We're going to pass it back to our host from Finance Podcast Week, Ronnie. And I believe we have a special link um, from Real Vision for everyone listening today. So, Ronnie, do you want to take it from here? Oh, sure thing. Uh, uh, we did have another question in the chat at all, if we were cool with answering that or if we were ready to dive right into our outro. Yeah, I think we've got a little bit of time. All right. Well, we did have a really great question here from the beginning. Uh, uh, well, someone asked, uh, how do we get started in crypto space aside from buying Bitcoin? Yeah, I think we I think we addressed that one during the um, during the podcast. Awesome possum. Sorry, I must I must have missed that one. Oh, no uh, problem. But yeah, even, <laughs> you know, just go. There's plenty of places to um, to read resources. I mean, I'm not certainly not going to make individual investment recommendations or anything like that. But, you know, I, you know, I think Masari.io is, is a great resource in terms of having, you know, uh, research data, access to white papers, explanations of what tokens do. There's great rooms in Reddit, in Discord, in, in um, Telegram, um, Twitter. I mean, it is a true open architecture and everyone, you know, globally, for the most part, is very welcoming and and you know wants you know everyone to kind of learn. And also, I would go. I'd say the other way to learn is is buy a digital asset and use it. You know, figure out what it's used for. Mm -hmm. Send it to somebody. Use an application with it. Um, you know, this is this is definitely a young person's arena in terms of being more comfortable on your phone and on your computer than you are in person. And, and, and you know, it's easy. It's easy to buy these assets. It's easy to use them. It's easy to go on a website and play around with how you uh, you know how you interact. Um, you know, so I think. There is definite reasons to start to combine your investing with your activities uh, and do both at the same time and really learn from this. Well, most excellent. We'll go ahead and wrap this up here. Um, we do have a membership link for our listeners to join the Real Vision uh, crypto group. Uh, Norma Jean, if you could link that, that would be super cool. And we'll go ahead and dive into our outro. So it's thank free. you. It is free. It is free. That's yes. the best part. <laughs> but thank you everyone for joining us for this live stream uh, between two chains live with Peter Hans of the between two chains podcast. If you joined late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this panel on the finance podcast week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetization platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see that we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only, and you should not construe any such information or other material as legal uh, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial, financial instruments. And with that, we thank everybody so much for coming into uh, today's panel, and we will see you at the next one. Thanks, all. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Jeff. For everyone still on the live stream, we are starting the next live stream in seven minutes for the, for the Stacking Benjamins live stream episode as well. So thank you again, Peter. Thank you, Jeff, to the Real Vision team. And for everyone here from Finance Podcast Week who's joined, you can stay on the channel and the next live stream will begin in seven minutes. We'll see.